Ayn Rand was sharply critical of the educational establishment of her time, but she regularly praised one educational thinker, Maria Montessori, the creator of the Montessori method. What is Montessori education? How is it distinct from other schools of thought in the field? What are the principles behind this approach, and how do they relate to Ayn Rand's philosophy, objectivism? Welcome to New Ideal, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today we'll be discussing the topic, Understanding the Principles of Montessori Education. I'm Sam Weaver, a junior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute, and joining me today is Dr. Matt Bateman. Matt has a PhD in philosophy from the University of Pennsylvania and taught a range of subjects at the university level. He was a founding member of Higher Ground Education, and today he is Vice President of Pedagogy for Higher Ground and the Executive Director of Montessorium, a research center studying the ideas behind Montessori education. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about who Maria Montessori was? Can you maybe outline some of her major accomplishments for listeners who have never heard of her before or don't know much about her? Sure. So uh, Maria Montessori, she, she's an early kind of first half of the 19th or sorry, first half of the 20th century thinker um, for she was born in the 1870s, died in the 1950s. And um, for our purposes here, her um, she, she had a kind of first career where she was exploring different things in medicine and psychiatry, um, where she um, she lectured on anthropology. She did a bunch of things related to um, activism and um, generally had a kind of vibrant and exciting uh, young life. Um, for our purposes here, her life starts, um, her, her career really starts in the early 1900s when, because of her work with an interest with um, kind of destitute children in an orthophrenic institute, um, she is solicited to uh, start a school, start a school in uh, San Lorenzo, which is, it was, it is a slum. It was a slum. It is, it is no longer a slum. I've been there. It's, it's not the nicest part of Rome. Um, but, um, but it's not like it was, um, and and she was commissioned to start a preschool for um, children living living in pretty extreme destitution. I mean, the way that she describes it is very Hugo esque in terms of the kind of level of misery that these children were living in. And um, she, over the course of a few years, um, works with a handful of teachers to create a really beautiful school where the children thrive. These are these are preschool age children. Um, they, they thrive. Um, they um, become more orderly, they become cleaner, um, they become happier. And the thing that really, really makes her famous is that she teaches them how to write. And um, this was, so she was teaching three, four, five-year-olds how to write, um, very, very poor children at a time when nobody was teaching children of that age how to write at all, no matter how wealthy you were and, and how well-positioned you were, and certainly, um, uh, if anything, the trend was going in the other direction. The kind of leading pedagogues of the day, um, you saw this a lot in the U.S. especially, were like, stop trying to force literacy on kids starting at a young age. Um, this is really an adult thing and they don't really care about it. And this is a kind of bizarre thing to do. Um, so um, she became very, very famous very, very quickly, um, um, starting from that. And then people came to realize that she had like a whole approach, like a really different approach to education. Um, it started earlier. Um, she assigned children a ton of freedom. She had these very specific curricular materials that some people loved and some people hated. 
Um, she had a, she had certain kinds of very specific structures in the classroom, very specific rules. Like she thought that the amount of material should be limited. She thought the children should interact in mixed ages. She thought that um, she prioritized taking turns over sharing. She loved loved it when children were independent and did practical life things. And then over time, she added more and more curricular materials. So not just related to writing, but she expanded the sensorial explorations to include more advanced math. Um, and generally kind of built out her program from there. And and nobody really knew what to make of it. I mean, people loved it. She had it, she had a huge fan base and wherever she went, she was inspiring and charismatic. And um, somebody thought that she, you know, the world of her, um, but the intellectual establishment really rejected her for various reasons. We can talk about that um, if you want. And, um, and, and she, she always kind of remained grassroots and, and extra academic and outside of the mainstream. And, um, she she experienced a real revival in this country in the in the late 1950s early 1960s um going into the 1970s and that i imagine is how uh how she came across the radar of ayn rand who as you said wrote effusively about her yeah so i think there are a lot of points you brought up there that we will have to get into greater detail on later uh for right now maybe maybe speaking in this big picture perspective uh, how would you describe where Montessori sits in relation to kind of two big ideas that we see in education in America today. On the one hand, the progressive education movement, the progressive approach, and on the other hand, kind of the back to basics, traditional education attitude that we hear from, from other people. So she's definitely not a traditionalist. Um, she is in she issues m many of the criticisms of traditional education of classical education of of traditional approaches to parenting even um that you know are, are similar in a lot of ways to the to the kinds of criticisms that people were making in the um in the early 20th century late 19th century so so i think of her as you know joining joining the chorus um, i mean she has her own perspective on it but she, she thinks that it's crazy to make children sit in desks. You, you take a bunch of six, seven-year-olds, you teach them how to read in this really rote way. They end up hating studying forever. Um, she did not have a happy experience in school as a kid. She was just like, there's, there's a bunch of boring stuff and you just have to go through it. Um, if you imagine, um, I, I imagine that a lot of listeners here will have read at some point in their life, life's, uh, Huckleberry Finn or, or Tom Sawyer, or one of the kind of Mark Twain books about youths who, have a very, very conflicted relationship to school with a kind of uh, overbearing kind of school marmy teacher who, and they resent it and it's boring and they try to goof off all the time. I mean, that you can hold that image in your mind of like, what was traditional education like? Um, um, it was pretty strict and it was pretty, it was pretty arid and boring. Um, so she thought that that approach was terrible, that it stultified um, the development of children, still divide the development of their thinking, still divide the development of their values, um, that it was, it kind of set children at war with the adult world that taught them that society sucks and it's something to be indifferent to or hate or resent. And maybe if you're obedient, you can get by, but there's no enthusiasm there. Um, but she, I mean, in terms of progressive education, so, um, she, was really rejected by the progressive education establishment. And, and you saw this most, especially in the US, I think in Europe, it was more of a, um, there was more of an exchange of ideas. Um, 
Um, but still, even even in Europe, um, um, in England and in Switzerland, she she thought that her approach was very very different than the, than the approaches that people compared her to. Um, progressive education set itself up. I mean, there are different strands of progressive education, but basically, it set itself up to be opposed to classical or traditional education, and all the strands are kind of aligned on, um, you know, kind of projects over curriculum. Um, um, the child's activity over the child's passivity, and the, you know that part she agreed with, um, but but they they gave the child tremendous freedom and, and were generally skeptical of structure, skeptical of curriculum, skeptical of bringing in intellectual aims that you know were from the adult or from society and the children weren't ready for. So they saw the whole kind of educational establishment and they they threw out the baby and they threw out the bathwater and they wanted nothing to do with any of it, and they saw Montessori's program. Um, particularly its curriculum and its structure um, with with deep suspicion. Um, so they saw it as what like you're taking these five year olds and you're having you're having them work through like a math curriculum and a writing curriculum and play with these materials in this very specific way. It's not like you're having them explore and create a project or build something with these blocks. You're having them sort the blocks from longest to shortest. And um, uh, uh, it's it's at this very um, very directive structure that's aimed at enculturating a child into the products of civilization, like literacy and mathematics, very, very young. And they thought that they, that was crazy. And um, and she thought that people were crazy for rejecting her. And so there, there was this persistent debate um, in the early 20th century um, between her and these other figures um, where they levied tons and tons and tons of arguments against her. And for the most part, she just wasn't that interested in engaging. And this is why, I mean, part of the reason why I mean, I think that the real reason is that there was a massive difference between Montessori and progressive education, and, and they saw that. But the kind of sociological fact is that um, she was basically ejected from the U.S. in 1916 and, and didn't reappear for 40 years um, because the progressives disagreed with her so much. And there's something to that. Like, like it's not crazy that they reject. I mean, it is crazy and that they're wrong and that Montessori was much more right than they were. Um, but um, they they sensed that she had a different approach, an approach that was more, had kind of more of the trappings of civilization and was more Aristotelian and less pragmatist. And, you know, they rejected her for that reason. Do you think it's fair to say that she saw there as being a false alternative between this idea that you could have content with no freedom or you can have freedom, but not a whole lot of content? Um, she was so, Yes, and and they're basically yes. So I so I for, I don't think that that dominated her thinking. Um, I don't think that she kind of like classified all previous systems according to this method. Remember, she was living in the early twentieth century. All this was very like when she started her career. There basically was no such thing as progressive education. There were a few alternative educators like Pestalozzi and Froebel in recent history, and some people doing some things in the U.S. And she was just part of this wave. I don't think that she spent a lot of time kind of like classifying schools of thought on education. There's some indications that she did a little bit of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, in essence, the answer is yes, she she rejects when people are like freedom. When you give freedom to the child, they go crazy. Or if you give freedom to the child, you can't give them curriculum. She's just like, no, that that's not right. Um, we have a different conception of what it means to give the child freedom and to give the child curriculum. And you can't just lump us in with the traditional educators who do that, or you can't lump us in with the progressive educators, the summer hell types who let their kids do whatever they want and let them vote on the rules of the school and let them bring any work in. She's very, very clear that those approaches are wrong and that, that she's taking, she's taking a kind of third way. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, she, she, she's, 
I could wave my magic wand and uh, wish that she did one thing differently, it would actually be that she did more, um, more by way of kind of um, intellectual comparisons and debate. Like she, she almost never talks about anybody else and when she does, it's rare. And she often doesn't mention people by name. And so it's just kind of hard to know exactly what she thought of, uh, of her competitors as it were. So you mentioned before that there was sort of a revival of interest uh, in Montessori in the U.S. in the, the 50s and 60s. Uh, what would you say is the, uh, the extent of her impact and her influence on education in the U.S. today? It's pretty significant. Um, so you can't overstate it. I mean, the U.S. education system is still fundamentally... Um, in certain ways, we have the worst of all worlds. Like we have the kind of worst elements of classicism and the worst elements of um, progressivism kind of mixed together in this weird bureaucracy that everybody hates. Um, and so you can't look at that and be like, wow, like Montessori is really influential. But here, here are some specific ways that she has influenced um, things. So one is that I mean, really, in the last 10 or 20 years, um, people, it's become mainstream to see early childhood education is really important. Um, I think I think I heard Obama talking about it in like, I don't know, 2009 or 2011 or something like that. And I was like, OK, like this is this is something that everybody believes now. Um, and that, and that, that's Montessori was part of that part of part of making that argument. She was a big part of making that argument and making it popular and convincing people that um, education in, in some sense of really systematic education things like literacy instruction um should really start young and that really really important things happen developmentally and that we can support that she wasn't the only person who made that argument but she was one of the first and one of the one of the one of the loudest voices and she definitely influenced that debate um, um another is um just the the number of people who and, and educators and manufacturers who do things like um, have hands-on math materials that um, incorporate principles of constructive geometry so that children can explore them. And uh, like Singapore math is a good example of this. You, you can kind of point to specific kinds of math curricula that I think are, are pretty clearly either directly or indirectly Montessori influenced. A third way is um, uh, American developmental psychology and just generally global post-cognitive revolution developmental psychology was the, the kind of massive founding figures, uh, Piaget. And Piaget was, um, you know, a contemporary of Montessori. He, he, he was one generation younger than her. He, he was a member of the Swiss Montessori Society. He was president of the Swiss Montessori Sorry Society, I believe. He, he talked to her a lot. He did a lot of his initial research in a, a Montessori school in Switzerland. He was very, very friendly to her views. He ends up developing a stage theory with some similarities and differences to Montessori. He's very interested in the cognitive development of children. So we don't know, as far as I know, like we don't have like letters between them, but we have pictures of them together. We know that they kind of interacted and spoke and that he was very, very familiar with her approach and, and favorable to it. Um, and then you see some some of these ideas crop up in cognitive psychology. So there there are other ways too, but um, um, I think you see it in the unschooling movement. I think you see it in, in kind of progressive circles that she's kind of pushed things in a certain way and pushed the argument in a certain way. Um, but you know, like if you're a parent and you go out and you buy like little tiny furniture for your child, and like you go and you see like decent learning materials that Fisher Price makes, 
it's hard to precisely say exactly what the line is between that and Montessori, but there is a line. I mean, she, she was part of a movement that um, really thought about how to do that and, and pioneered how to do that. So you just mentioned that Maria Montessori had sort of a distinctive view of the the way that children develop the the stages or the the periods of a of a child's development. Could you give us a, a bit of an orientation to her view on that? Yeah. So, um, like a lot of people at the time and since, um, she developed um, a kind of stage theory of human development and. and and she thought that this was important. So the, the analogy is like, I don't, I don't know what the exact right counter analogy is, but like, so, so imagine a baby worm, like a baby worm is like a small worm, right? It looks like a big worm, but it's small. And then it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. And probably if I was a biologist, a worm biologist, I would know that there's actually stages and there's like, like there's a stage at which the worm reaches sexual maturity or whatever. But as far as I know from the outside, it just looks like the worm gets a little bit bigger every day until something eats it or until it dies. Um, so it's very linear development. Uh, Montessori thought that human development was much more like a, a caterpillar that turns into a butterfly. There are like big, dramatic life cycle changes um, where it's not just you get a little bit bigger. It's like something qualitatively different happens. Um, um, the most important for her is that she, she thought that the first six years of life, the, the minds of children worked fundamentally differently um, than, than the adult mind. So the adult mind and even the minds of older children, they're, they're basically, it's, they're kind of centrally governed by, um, including in their learning function by consciousness. Um, so like you want to learn something and you set a goal and you, and you decide like X is important to this goal and Y isn't important. And um, um, you, you kind of filter things consciously if you wanna, if you want to, um, learn a language like you're like what's my strategy going to be i need flashcards i need a teacher um, what's the grammar i can study it i can put words to the things that i want to do um she thought that children did not learn that way and could not learn that way um that they learned by the subconscious process of a, what she called absorption or I mean, she called the um she called the stage of the first six years of life the absorbent mind um, and she thought that her, her view was that the child, it's not that the child isn't conscious, the child is kind of like not aware, the child is aware, but that the subconscious of the child is different from the adult subconscious. It's absorbing a massive amount of material and it's working on this material, that it's kind of working in this subconscious unconscious way to take this material that it's getting from experience. It's, you're hearing words, you're seeing things, you're moving around, you're having proprioceptive experiences. You're, you have all the experience of a, of a, um, of an infant or toddler and the brain is kind of automatically taking that and calibrating and using that material to like build up gradually build up what will become the full-blown adult conscious reasoning mind um, and that happens kind of in the background where the child is expending effort to do it but not really consciously directing it um, and so what that means in practice is that i mean the language is the clearest and best example like everybody now knows this but montessori made a huge deal of this um, young children learn learn language perfectly um, more perfectly, they learn a new language, they learn their native tongue more perfectly than an adult can learn it. Um, and it is because there is something special about their subconscious, their brain, um, that, that tunes them to that. It's not because they're extra motivated or um, just, be, just because like their, their brain hasn't been written on yet and so there's nothing there and it just happens to land clearly. 
um, she thought it, it, it's that the child was sensitized to human speech um, and, um, and took the matter of human speech and their brains produced um, a kind of vocabulary and a grammar and a, and a whole a whole kind of fluent way of speaking um, to to an extent that uh, so in this respect uh, children learn better than adults like so adults can't learn like children learn and and and, and uh, children can't learn like adults learn they're just different in that respect I mean this has all sorts of implications for education like you can't talk at children I mean it's good to talk to them and, and help develop their 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 um, sense of language and help give them the sense that the adults around are rational. So I'm not saying don't talk to children, but that's a misinterpretation that I'm a little bit paranoid about, but like you don't kind of explain things to children. The children like are very, very observant. They're very imitative. Um, they're, they're sucking in a lot. They're observing a lot. They're not filtering. Like if you kind of, a, a classic thing is like, if you give a toddler like a careful presentation that you want them to imitate, and then you kind of brush your hair back, like any adult would be like the brushing of the hair back is not relevant to this presentation, whereas a toddler would like imitate it directly because they're they're copying, they're absorbing, they're they're very very um, sensory motor bound, as Piaget would come to say. Um, so um, that's that's the I mean the thing that she's on about the most. I mean she has a book called The Absorbent Mind where she talks about the, this this distinct developmental stage, and she elaborates the different sensitivities that children have, um, and and how consciousness slowly develops. So that's the zero to six age. The six to 12 age, she thinks of as the age of reason. Um, she also calls it the age of instruction. This is the elementary school age. There's a reason why school typically starts at this age. It's, it's like, if you're, if you're gonna have a kind of crappy traditional education, this is the age at which it makes sense. Children are consciously directed. Um, they can, um, they're very generally curious. They're using their reasoning minds for the first time. They're hungry for abstract knowledge. They're hungry for explanations. They're hungry for stories. Um, um, there's also other things going on at this age, but it's a relatively calm time where children are practicing to use reason for the first time and, and learning about the world in an abstract way for the first time. If you can, if you come into this age, Montessori thought reading and writing, you have a huge head up because you can engage in this kind of independent abstract study in a way that's exciting to you as opposed to like buckling down and, you know, learning phonemes and graphemes with flashcards. Um, adolescence, she didn't have a kind of pithy phrase for adolescence. So, um, the first six years of the absorbent mind, the next six years of the reasoning mind, when you get to 12 to 18, what is adolescence? Um, the closest she comes is to calling it the social newborn. Um, I think that the, the right way to think about this age in Montessori's terms is that this is the first time when you, when you are able to kind of take direct responsibility for the whole course of your life, including the long term and how you fit into the complicated social structure around you. And everybody faces this question. It's like, there's an economy and a political structure and like, what job am I going to get? And oh my gosh, my friends like are really, really important in a way that is new. I mean, every adolescent experiences this, um, the kind of heightened importance of friendships and social relationships, social status matters. And so you're, you're kind of owning all of this yourself, whereas previously to adolescence, Adults around you are kind of custodial for parts of it. Um, you know, like, you're, like typically nine-year-olds aren't really thinking about like their career and how they fit into society. They're trusting adults to help guide them and make developmental decisions for them that will set them up for success. Now you're doing that as a teenager and all these questions become very important, very scary and very dramatic. And so she thought of adolescence as kind of like a second birth. Like there's this intense zero to six, like going from zero to one phase and there's the calmer elementary years where you can study and you're exercising your reasoning mind. And then there's this intensity with adolescence again, where it's like more similar to being a toddler if you're 13 than, than it is to being, you know, a 10 year old. Um, 
so you get through that <laughs> and um and you kind of ideally you like learn to valorize work and society and find have a sense of like what your place in the world could be and are excited about that and then the last phase she calls maturity um she writes even less about the montessori adult this kind of 18 to 24 year old year, year phase and you know this is like you're an adult you're a grown-up and um um you know some students go to university others don't and, and her kind of conception of it but um you know we could talk about her kind of whole view of human nature and what adult life was like but that that's kind of what it gets us to there all your powers are active you're responsible for your life um you know um time just time to start your your grown life and it kind of there, there's no kind of dramatic developmental biologically driven phases after that 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 kind of brings you to maturity so what does she think adults should be doing to help children make their way through these stages of development and, and get the things that they need to develop successfully? Maybe focusing especially on the, the first two phases. Yeah, so, I mean, she writes the most, the kind of younger you go, the more she writes in general. Um, so she writes the most about the three to six age, a lot about the zero to three age and, and a little bit less about every age after that kind of in, in descending order. Um, she thinks that adults should, um, set up an environment for very young children where the children can be successful in navigating that environment, where it's comprehensible to them, where it's really designed for them, like simple things, like everything is in reach and they can, they can use all the furniture. Um, um, things on the shelf are accessible to them. Um, there, there are sinks that they can reach. Um, they can wash their own hands. There are specific stations set up. The Montessori classrooms will have like nose blowing stations for toddlers, like a little table where you can walk up and pull off a tissue and see if there's a booger in your nose and learn how to wipe it yourself. Like if you're, that sounds funny and it is funny, but like if you're a parent who spends half of their day running around and trying to wipe the snot off your kid's face, it's like an amazing thing to see kids be able to do this themselves and to see that Children of this age care. If you if you kind of set them up right, they actually care and will want to um, meet their own needs themselves, and including a certain amount of cleanliness and grace. Um, um, the second thing is, she thought that you should, just in terms of the environment, she thought that you should the environment should be stocked with learning materials, um, which she kind of borrowed and expanded on and modified from um, French theory from a number of people, but especially French theorists and some German theorists um, like Froebel and Sagoon. Um, who were developing kind of hands-on learning materials that instantiated abstract principles. Um, things like, I mean, she came to invent famously the movable alphabet. So the movable alphabet is an alphabet where you can rearrange the letters um, and you don't have to write them down. It sounds very, very simple. And, and kind of instances of this have, have existed in some form for a long, long time for centuries, but she, she uses it in a certain way and puts it in a certain kind of scope and sequence. The same for her sensorial materials. So there's the red rods, which vary only in length. There's the brown stair, which vary in length and width. And there's the pink tower where the pieces vary in length, width, and height. So it's a kind of series of shrinking cubes. And these are introduced to the child in a certain order, and they're meant to sort them in a certain way, and eventually do extended exercises where they notice comparisons, like with the red rods, that you can kind of um, pair them off and make, make, make them match in a certain way. With the number of rods, you will eventually come to see that you're making them match in a way that add up to 10. And that that's there's a kind of number of ways that you can make tens. Um, so she had these exercises that you would do with sensorial materials, with with other kinds of materials where you would sort them and explore them in various structured ways. 
all of this was set up in an environment um, where if you did it right and you kind of set the right tone and had the right rules and, and set the right gravitas and we can talk about how to do that um, you could really let children loose in this environment and they would be pretty orderly they would go to a shelf if you kind of showed them how get out a material bring it to a table work on it practice with it for a while when they were done bring it back to the material and then look around the room and see what they wanted to do next they, they would they would do this and they would do this for some hours um, for a really long time and while they were working they would be really really concentrated and Montessori thought that this phenomenon that children could concentrate and would choose to concentrate um, at some length like if you have this image in your mind of like Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel and he just loses himself in his work and it's this work of genius and people have to like pry him away from his works so, and feed him and like don't forget to eat Michelangelo and then they would let him, let him go back she thought that basically every child was like that in the right circumstances that they would kind of obsessively become interested in something and do it and work on it and both because of the challenge itself and because they were meeting their needs but also just because there's something in children that wants to exercise their faculties and perfect themselves. And that phenomenon of really, really intensive concentration, concentrated work, effort, she has different terms for it. We at Higher Ground call it work. Um, that's really central, um, kind of enabling and facilitating that. So, so you're enabling and facilitating that, and then you're setting up the environment so that when children are engaged, when they're working, they're working on things that are valuable, that are intellectually valuable or practically valuable, that build the child's cognition, their sense of independence, their, um, their confidence, um, their ability to kind of sort the world into, into um, useful categories, um, scaffold things like literacy and mathematics later and, and other kinds of cultural subjects too. Um, so you want a prepared environment where the things that children are excited to work on are very valuable and they add up to the scope and sequence, but very, very fundamental to it is just that children are working at all. She thought of that as like, you are developing your consciousness, you're, you're learning persistence, you're learning to love effort and activity and not passivity. Um, it, it's very morally important for her. Um, so that's that's zero to six. Do you want to ask me any questions before I go on to six to 12? Uh, no, I think you can go on to that. Okay, so six to 12 um, is, is quite a bit different. So um, it's similar in that she still thinks you should prepare the environment. And she still thinks you should give children a lot of freedom, but children at this age are um, able to receive instruction and learn from instruction and benefit from instruction in a way that's um, qualitatively different. Um, remember, they're not in the absorbent mind, they're now conscious. Um, so, so a lot of instruction is framed around big picture stories that kind of, um, what are called in Montessori the great stories that set a kind of framework for understanding anything that you might want to study. Um, you can almost think of them as myths. Um, we've tweaked them and rewritten them a little bit at higher ground so that they're they're like big histories i mean all the great stories are big histories but we, we take a certain approach to them um and then children are using a mixture of hands-on materials that are really extensions of and continuations of what happens earlier so children in the zero to six age can do a lot so if you just take math by the by the t if the child is let's say average um, and the teacher knows what they're doing. Um, children are doing double-digit operations by the time that they leave um, the zero to six age. So they're doing kind of double-digit multiplication and division, addition, and subtraction um, with the help of materials. Um, um, there's even more advanced materials in elementary. So there's brilliant, brilliant materials like the checkerboard that let you take double digits to an arbitrary number of digits. And, and um, there's gr grammar materials that extend the kind of movable alphabet writing literature 
literacy um, scope and sequence of the early years into a kind of abstract, explicit, self-reflective understanding of, of grammar. Um, and then there's also a lot of reading and writing. And, and there are presentations that are more um, kind of contentful. Um, I, I think it's okay to have a fair amount of didactic material in elementary. You don't want it to dominate the classroom, and, and it's not like you're sitting and listening to lectures all day. But children love hearing lectures if you, if you don't if you make it interesting for them and you do it right, and it's embedded in a kind of very active scope and sequence. So there's more presentations that are like that, especially when it comes to history, um, um, and to some extent when it comes to science and literature too. Um, but um, yeah, I mean the content subjects take on what I think of as the technical subjects like writing and math. Um, continue and the content subjects take a very, very central role in elementary. So science, history, literature. Um, Montessori writes a lot about history. She said a little about science and not that much about literature um, for various reasons that are, I think, mostly historically accidental. We've, we and mo a lot of other Montessori schools have to really substantiate it out a, a literature curriculum to go along with the, with the rest. Um, so um, you're still independent. You're still choosing work off the shelf and working on it. You're still organizing your own time. You keep a work journal or you have some other mechanism of kind of managing your time. You meet with a teacher. It's almost like you're in an open office and like you're meeting with your startup boss and they're like, what are you working on? And you're like this and they're like, cool. Well, like, don't forget about these other priorities and you kind of work on them together. You're getting a lot of feedback. Um, the Montessori curriculum is very big on formative assessment. So, so a kind of continuous stream of feedback insofar as you can get it directly from the materials, what Montessori called control of error, that's best, but you can get a lot of feedback from peers and adults as well at this age. Um, so that's that's the thrust of it. So what we've talked a lot about materials. What would you say is the advantage of learning from materials, especially for those elementary children where you might think that you know, there, there are ways that people try to teach math to elementary children that don't involve the hands-on materials that the teacher just explains things or shows things what's what is the benefit of the materials so so we can play a game with our listeners so um probably if i ask you what's the formula to calculate the area of a circle um probably a lot of you will be like i think it's pi r squared like you'll remember something about the formula from your elementary years and if i say what's pi um probably even more of you will be like something like 3.14 like maybe maybe at some point in childhood if you were like me and a math geek you tried to memorize it to as many digits as possible i think it can still be like 10 or 12. um but what is pi where does that number come from why does it work why do you calculate the area by multiplying this random freaking number 3.14 this irrational number you might remember that it's irrational by the square of the radius I mean, I talk to a lot of educators um, and a lot of adults generally, and um, a tiny minority can answer that question. Um, what is what does all of this mean? Like like a lot of math. I mean, the way that you typically go through math is um, you memorize algorithms, basically, like a set of procedures. Um, so so even think of column addition. Like okay, like you you have like um, or column multiplication. Like you have um, you know one hundred and seventy five times 15. Okay, you start by taking the 5 and the 175 and multiplying it by the 5 and 15 and writing, right? So that adds up to 25 and you write the 5 underneath and then you carry the 2 and you kind of, there's this procedure that you go through and at some point you add a 0 and you start over and you add all the numbers up. Why Why does that, what is that? What the F is, it's like, 
you, you know from a calculator that it works and everybody learns it in school, but the thing that most people internalize is there are these random algorithms that seem to work by magic. And I guess there's some reason why they work. I don't understand why they work, but if I do it, I'll get the right answer and I'll get good grades. Um, there are reasons why these things work. And you can, you can teach it um, so that children understand why they work. And it doesn't involve doing a bunch of really abstract number theoretic demonstrations. Um, the history of math and, and, um, and when you do math, math education done right is, is replete with um, more concrete, more visual um, demonstrations of mathematical principles, what I earlier referred to as constructive geometry, but, but you, can, you can represent, even in non-geometrical context, you can represent a lot of mathematical truths um, physically. Um, and you can actually see what's going on. Like you can, we, I mean, every elementary student in a Montessori classroom knows that pi is a ratio. It's the ratio between the circumference and the diameter of the circle. And that if you roll the circle, if you unroll the circle and you compare it to the diameter every single time, no matter how big the circle is, you get three and a little bit um, radiuses, or sorry, diameters um, when, when you're unrolling the circumference and there's all these exercises that you do. And you puzzle over that. You're like, that's funny. Why is that? And, and you, you puzzle over its irrationality, and then you come to understand visually through a series of kind of um, constructive geometric Euclidean Pythagorean exercises and materials what the relationship is between that ratio and the various formula that you can use for circles, um, like how to calculate um, area and how, how to calculate the diameter from, from circumference. You really understand it. And, and if that's how you learn math, um, what you learn is that um, the world has all these relationships that you can see and understand, and that's what math is about. And you can ask questions about it and you can observe differences and you can get into it and you can notice patterns you yourself can do it and at each step you can understand what's going on and yeah you do want to learn the algorithms at some point like you want to kind of compress it down to, to quick um do you want to memorize things you want to compress it down you want to make your mind faster but whenever you do it you get it you get kind of why it's happening and that's a very different lesson to internalize over the course of 12 years than um, i'm memorizing an increasingly serious set of rules until you get to whatever ab calculus or whenever most students finish and then you kind of are memorizing, you know, f prime of x equals something. And in most contexts, that just means that you take the exponent and subtract one and multiply the constant by in front of it by that. And God only knows why this works. And my teacher might have mentioned a proof. And um, you don't even know what you're doing at that point. It's something about getting the slope, um, getting the tangent of a slope. Um, whereas in Montessori, like children know what they're doing when they do binomial expansion. They really, really understand it. And that is just such an amazing power to have in your mind, then it's just a totally different habit of mind. You mentioned also control of error through the materials. Does that have to do with this idea? Yeah, so Montessori had this technical term control of error. And the, um, it, it, the easy way to understand it, it, it's a pretty straightforward idea, is that the, the situation is set up so that when the child makes a mistake, the child can notice themselves. The child himself or herself can notice it. So um, um, a simple example is with the pink tower. So the pink tower is, a, is 10 pink cubes that start off at 10 centimeters um, height, width, and length and go down by one until you get to one centimeter. And the, the basic task of the pink tower, there are a number of things you can do with them, but the basic task is just to stack them in order. You kind of start with them in disarray and you stack them in order. And let's say that you don't stack them in order. You can do it, um, but A, it's harder, it's less stable, 
So if you really get it wrong, the pink tower is going to fall apart. Especially these are toddlers, right? Like who are doing this. So it's not like, like it's not like you're playing Jenga as an adult and you're doing all these ninja things. You're like just trying to like stacking is a thing that children have to learn how to do. So if you stack them in the wrong order, it's more likely to knock down. And even if you get it, even if you manage it in the right order and you look at it at the end, it's very visually obvious that something is that something is off and something is wrong. Especially when the pink tower in its default configuration is is correct. So the way that the pink tower sits in the room and the thing that you've seen for years and years coming into the Montessori classroom, or maybe not years and years, but at least months and months coming into the Montessori classroom before you do it is this beautifully kind of, you know, linearly, triangularly, monotonically decreasing setup tower um, in the room. And you've just kind of internalized that idea. So for a variety of reasons, nobody needs to come and tell you, you did it wrong. Um, you don't need the adult, it's person to come, this authority figure to come and explain to you why you did it wrong. Um, you yourself can see that you did it wrong. And so you get used to checking your own work and you get comfortable with mistakes. And um, there's this great Paul Graham quote from one of his recent essays, I think, or maybe it's just a tweet where he said something like, um, in school, what you internalize is that um, life is a series of tests that you have to do perfectly on. Um, and what you learn in real life is that life is life is a series of easy tests that you have to do perfectly on. And what you learn in real life is that life is a series of very hard tests where if you do mediocrely on them, if you do averagely on them, like you're, that's great. Like you can get a lot of things wrong as long as you're getting some things right and it's really hard to make things perfect and you're gonna make mistakes all the time, but you're accomplishing something real. And um, that just that kind of friendliness with like things are hard. Like I've got to I've got to be the one to assess whether things are going well or poorly. Like that, that you would get that lesson in school is very unusual. And control of error is an idea that runs through that. And so as much as possible, Montessori materials are set up so that children can notice when they're making mistakes themselves. And that's just like they get comfortable with that, and it's fine, and they fix it. And that that's just it's a lesson that a lot of people struggle with. A lot of people don't like making mistakes. I think typical traditional school really does inculcate in you a kind of unhealthy perfectionism. Like either you're going to get a perfect or it's not worth doing. Hmm. So you've mentioned several times throughout this conversation, the idea of freedom and that being a really core yeah. part of what Maria Montessori is going for. Um, but I get the sense that there, there's a, she has a distinct conception of freedom. It's you mentioned earlier, it doesn't just mean like, letting them do whatever they want, whenever they want. Um, so what, what does freedom mean to her when she's talking about it in the educational context? Freedom means, um, so, so, so why, let me answer that question a little bit circuitously. So, so why freedom is important for Montessori is that she thinks that you need to master yourself. Um, that at the end of the day, um, the fact that you are in charge of your own life, it's, I mean, it's good to be in charge of your own life, but it's also just a fact. Um, it, it's, it's a kind of fundamental feature of human nature, it kind of bridges the natural and the normative um, in, in that sense. And that um, you, part of being a healthy human, part, part, of, part of what it means to be a human is that you know how to set goals, you know how to self-regulate, you know how to make decisions. If you're faced with a crisis, a kind of big decision or something that you have to think through a moral crisis and nobody's around to help you, like you can do it. You can think it through. Maybe you'll make mistakes, but like you're not afraid of it. You're not going to like run to somebody to tell you what to do and you're not going to run into the arms of like, you know, 
an abusive parent or, or a demagogue or something like that, which is what she thinks a lot of people do in those, in those circumstances. They kind of totally, it's precisely in, in moments of moral peril, people abdicate on their judgment because they feel scared and they go and ask somebody else for help. Um, so she thinks that you you can and ought to be, and, and in a fundamental sense, are independent, and that this is something that you can't properly give up, and oughtn't properly give up. Um, how do you get that way? Is it is it just that some people are Howard Rorks and some people are Peter Keatings, and that's just how you're born? Like, I, I mean, there there is this this question um, in, in Rand's fiction as to, as to how the characters got that way. It's often not that obvious. Um, Montessori's view is that this is a developmental issue, that you kind of gradually build up a capacity to um, govern yourself, um, to be independent, to to not just not just make any decision that you want, but to like be thoughtful and kind of consciously in control of your life, and then have a good centered, disciplined character. Not because somebody's telling you that you have to be disciplined, and, and there's a whip, you know, waiting for you. Um, if you're not, but because like this is you've developed virtue in yourself. This is the good life. You, you've kind of mastered yourself. You, you have self control, um, and you can think long term, and you can you can really kind of make your make your actions and desires follow what you actually think is best. Um, how do you get that way? In little little tiny bits, with practice, starting from when you're very young, um, and the more you can practice meeting your own needs and doing things yourself, and um, um, exercising your own faculties. And I mean, children naturally want to be independent. If you ever interact with a two-year-old, like the, the, the cause of their resistance to you and tantrums is that you've done something for them that they want to do themselves. They want to practice this stuff. They want to become more and more independent and just not messing that up. So A, supporting it and B, not messing it up um, is just something that she thinks that the human species is terrible at. Most, most children, we're just impatient with them. We don't set them up for success. We, it's easier to just do it for them. It's less annoying when they just sleep all the time and, and are obedient. Um, it's a lot of work to set a child up to be able to succeed on their own. Like it, it actually is like as a parent, like much easier to just do it for a child than to like take the 45 minutes that it takes them to kind of figure out how to do it themselves. Um, and, um, and so we kind of rush in and interrupt and, and, um, um, or we kind of don't set the child up for success in the right way. And um, children never get to practice this. Another way we can go wrong is just by um, catering to the child's every whim. And, and this is much more of a problem today than it was in Montessori's time. And so she doesn't say as much about this, though, it, though it's clear that she has it in mind as, as a potential way to go wrong with like um, the Summer Hill schools was something that she was aware of, and she thought that that school was really, really bad. I mean, in general, she knew that there were progressive approaches where children kind of had the, had had a kind of broader range of um, choice and, and a kind of more restricted range of structure. For Montessori, freedom is there in order to develop independent self-discipline and character. It's not there so that you can do whatever you want. Um, the capacity to face the choice of doing whatever you want and making good choices. Um, you need you need a large amount of freedom in order to be able to genuinely face that choice and make good choices and practice making good choices over time. You need the capacity to some extent to make poor choices and, and to kind of suffer the consequences or, or to have somebody redirect you or convince you that it's wrong. Um, but the point of freedom is not for like raw hedonism and self-expression or, you know, it, it, it's it's to practice mastering yourself from a young age. And, and, if, and if that's going to happen, then you need a certain environment. Like that doesn't, like if you can just kind of like let a child go, especially in, a, in, in our modern world with like 
the world supply of kind of child-directed toys and, and activities. I mean, we live in a much more um, child-friendly world and, and stimulating world um, for children than, than Montessori did. Um, you know, you're not going to develop self-discipline unless, unless you're thoughtful about kind of how you set the child up to navigate that kind of situation. So a lot of things that you've mentioned have uh, touched on this some, but I'd, I'd like to ask you more directly, like what, what does Montessori see as the goal of education or the purpose of education? Maybe what kind of, what kind of thing is education doing for the child? Um, it, it's setting up, um, I'm, I'm going to answer this one in my own words, and I, I'm not going to answer it in Montessori's words. So, so Montessori calls um, education the process of support for human development, and she has a very broad conception of what that means. And she thinks that it's it's um, it, it has a certain function that it plays for the individual, and it also plays a certain social function, and, and she has a complicated view as to how those two things interact. Um, what's very clear in Montessori and what, what we emphasize in our work is that the foundation of any kind of social change that you want to make um, really really resides with an individual. Um, and that the problem to solve is one of individual character, an individual capacity, an individual self-esteem and emotional security. Um, it's, it's really to kind of figure out what goes wrong in development such that some individuals end up end up vicious and what goes right in development such that some individuals end up virtuous and um, how are we going to solve that problem how are we going to set up a child to be at harmony with themselves to love themselves and, and others to be in harmony with society and that is essentially i mean she, she views this in very very i don't know neo aristotelian terms she sees it as a problem of virtue um of of, of kind of building souls of a certain sort or developing character of a certain sort she also thinks I should, I just want to say, like, she does think that you do this because it has social aims. Um, and it's often unclear in Montessori whether she thinks that the social aims are really the kind of ultimate telos or whether she thinks that it's about helping individual children. Um, but at least the process is one of helping individual children, even if you think it has a social telos. And I think that um, helping individual children is the ultimate kind of purpose, the, the goal of education. That That's how we have kind of uh, adopted um, a kind of neo-Montessorian perspective on this. Can you talk some about uh, why Montessori education might be of particular interest to listeners of this podcast who tend to be fans of Ayn Rand? Yeah, so I should have pulled it up before this podcast. At some point years and years ago, when I first started getting into Montessori, I found all the passages in Rand and all, and all her Q&As and all the kind of um, objectivist newsletter essays that she edited or wrote where she mentions Montessori. It's not that many, um, but it is, it's also not that few. Like it does, it does come up a number of times. Um, um, so the, there are two big points of synergy. Um, one is this emphasis on independence. So a famous Montessori quote is that um, development takes the form of an arrow aimed at development. I'm going to bastardize it. Uh, the development basically is about independence. It's about ever ever increasing independence, even from birth. Um, it's about kind of increasing self mastery, increasing an increasing ability to make your own decisions and judgments, and increasing your ability to kind of author and command your own life, to be secure with yourself. Um, and independence is an 
super central theme for, for Rand, for objectivists. It, it shows up in her novels in a huge way, in all of her novels, especially in The Fountainhead. Um, um, and, and her contrast is dependence. I mean, her contrast is, she doesn't use the term secondhand in this book, but she, she has a sense that like people get into bad, insecure relationships with other people where they're envious or they're, um, they're um, anxious, where they, um, they either kind of are, are afraid of other people and avoid them, or they um, are afraid of other people and therefore give themselves over to them because they don't know what to do, because they lack this kind of security in themselves to deal with them. She, she sees a lot of the pathologies of, the, of, of her time as issues of unhealthy dependence. Um, rather than healthy independence that leads you to being able to be kind of voluntarily associative and interdependent in the right way. So there's there's just a ton of synergy between um, Rand and Montessori on this point, on their view of the fundamentality of independence. Um, like if you don't have independence, you're not going to be able to get anything else. So they, Rand and Montessori are going to disagree on a lot. And let's, let's also be clear on that. They would have not have seen eye to eye politically um, or, or ethically or on, on any number of fronts. Um, Montessori was very religious. Um, she was broadly socialist, um, kind of old left Oscar Wilde socialist in, in her politics. Um, she, um, she thought that the universe had a purpose, um, had a grand design and that humans had a, had a certain role to play. But on this point of, look, you've got to start with independence. There was a ton of synergy and very deep synergy. It wasn't just like an aside, you have to have independence. Her whole education revolves around developing independence. Um, the second point is that there's this question in philosophy and education um, really since um, since at least the early enlightenment since the kind of days of early days of baconianism um, where, where people were first like look you can learn from your senses empiricism what we would today call empiricism was having a certain kind of revival um, as to what what exactly that means that you learn things from their senses, how that process works, um, what, it, what it looks like in a good case. Um, how, is there a way to kind of say that all knowledge is grounded in the senses where you still get like deep causes and necessary knowledge of the world and not just fleeting human things and sensations. Um, and educators who have been interested in this idea of learning from the senses have also asked these questions. Like what does it mean that the child is learning from his or her senses and that everything is being built up from there? Um, Montessori takes a, a very good view of this question, like, like as, as I think, basically as good as you can get, especially in the early years, where she thinks that the, the right approach is to give children a, a kind of sensorially structured environment that makes certain contrasts, um, certain, certain um, similarities and differences perceptually more obvious to children. Um, so I mentioned the brown stair, the red rod, and the pink tower, just as one example, uh, one, one suite of examples um, of um, helping a child visually and in a kind of proto-cognitive, proto-conceptual way, isolate different attributes of length versus width versus height. Um, and there's lots and lots of materials like that where, um, where the material is perceptible but where she's relying on the human ability to start to form abstractions for the material to work at all. Um, and it's, the material is set up brilliantly so that you're, you're seeing the, the child in, in objectivist terminology, the child is going to be able to get the unit perspective or see certain conceptually basic patterns very, very quickly and easily from these materials. Um, nobody else who 
I mean, you get some intimations in, in Bach and to some extent Comenius and maybe even to some extent Rousseau and others. Um, even if you go further back, you have people like um, Plato saying things like, yeah, like it's good for kids to learn math, to start learning math with like games, like, you know, kids are like count, learning how to count by like playing with beans and you see this in Egypt and you see this in, in Athens. And, um, but she really works out, like if you really want to push education very young um, to the point where children are just starting to use their minds. Um, what is the scope and sequence? What is the epistemology? What does it look like? And there's just tons of consonants. I mean, this is what the, what, what's her name? Beatrice Hessen, I think is the name of the person who wrote. She wrote an analysis um, that Rand edited, I believe, um, in one of her newsletters, the Objectivist, the Objectivist newsletter or something like that. There's a two-part analysis um, that really hammers this point home, that just like there's a lot of really excellent epistemology um, baked into um, the Montessori scope and sequence, and, and she it's an answer to the question as to how do you start from the senses but get conceptual knowledge that's really deep and really rigorous and really systematic. Um, and, and Montessori is, I think, the, really the first person to develop really comprehensive scopes and sequences that do that. There are people that made stabs at it before, people like I mentioned earlier, like Froebel or Sagoon, or people who thought that you should use Euclid's elements, you know, when you're teaching elementary geometry, but the way that she did it is just something else. I mean, really starting from birth. So there's the, so that's, so those two points are, sorry, sorry. The two points are like just this incredible epistemology that takes seriously both perception and the conceptual faculty that, that unifies them in, I mean, you can't call it an objectivist way because Montessori had no clue about objectivism and probably she was an Aristotelian of some form, but in a way that that's consonant with things that objectivists care very deeply about in terms of cognitive development and also in terms of moral development, just this, this strong emphasis on independence, on, on, on giving children freedom so that they can develop the kind of inner fortitude to be independent, to, to be, you know, Howard Rourke's in their own way, to go and live their lives and be self-authors, like that Montessori would agree with that. Yeah, so I want to ask some more things about both of those areas you mentioned. Uh, so on the epistemological side, uh, would you say that Montessori has a sensitivity to what uh, what objectivism calls the hierarchy of knowledge, the idea that there's a sequence to knowledge and more abstract items, more abstract concepts or items of knowledge depend on more basic, more concrete ones? Yeah, she, she does, for sure. Um... she wouldn't put it that way so so what she says it's very hard for me to talk about this um i mean on the one hand i'm, I'm like at this point um sort of a montessori historian and scholar like I, I just know a lot about what she said and how she thought and on the other hand i have ideas about how i understand it and how to integrate some of these points with with my framework um so this is a hard conversation for me to navigate but um so she, she wouldn't say that there's a hierarchy. In some moods, she would say that there's a sequence. Here, here's what she does say. She says that when we think about sequences, including pedagogical sequences, like sequences from, from the simpler to the complex or something like that. So, so pedagogues from time immemorial have thought about sequences from the simpler to the complex or have thought about like, what's a way that we can order this material to make it easy for children. So Montessori is not the first to ask this question. She thinks that typically when we ask this question though, we, we go wrong really fast. 
um, because we th we think in adult terms about like what's fundamental or simplest to adults. What's kind of the most fundamental in my adult understanding? What lies at the basis and is the kind of simple elements that everything are going to be built up with. And so, I mean, just to give a kind of goofy example, like if you're going to teach a child about chemistry, like you start with a periodic table. That's the elements. Like that, those are the simplest things. Those are the things that you start with when, like the simplest things for the child are like things that with substances that they see and can touch and feel and probably if you wanted to get like simple chemical reactions you wouldn't start in a lab you start with something like cooking like like um tr transformations of materials under heat that the child can understand um so um the 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 child's sequence is very different than the sequence that adults will naturally come up with so this is a point that she does make in a few places like the introduction to psychogeometry is a point where she is a place where she says it very very clearly and she says that what you should do is really work very closely with children and observe them carefully and don't take for granted either and either assuming too much or too little of what children can understand and introduce things to them with different materials and different modes of explanation and, and kind of pedagogical introduction and see which ones they can actually understand and work with. And on that basis, you reconstruct a kind of default sequence. But she, she, she thinks of herself as kind of less like theorizing, you know, what, what the sequence should be and more like we're doing a bunch of pedagogical experiments on the premise that there is a sequence, a kind of general sequence, and that the child's activity will reveal it to us. And insofar as that's the method that she used, I mean, honestly, it seems very successful. Like, like it's, it's, she didn't kind of sit down and do like a logical objectivist reduction from you know, a concept to, to the particulars and, and, you know, an objectivist terminology to reduce a concept and then develop a series of materials on that basis. It was much more experimental than that. Um, but what she landed on is, is something that seems manifestly, um, you know, hierarchically friendly. Um, um, so certainly, I, I think that that's roughly how she thinks of it. And then at a certain point, I don't think that she thinks that it's as important. So she doesn't, um, for older children, she doesn't seem to think that, um, hierarchy plays as big of a role if anything she seems to think that kind of giving the child the big picture all at once and filling in the details in a way that um, I think is often um, you could question whether that's the only thing that you want to be doing at least um, she, she it seems insensitive to like what does the child genuinely really understand here and what are they just kind of getting from this framework that they're kind of reading in a book or getting from adults and um, but there's still even even there there's kind of more sensorial stuff than most most educational approaches have so speaking of the the older children, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this a lot. A lot of people have the perspective that Montessori is really good for like the three to six ages. And maybe to put it in more objectivist terms, it's it's good for getting children to, to form their, their first abstractions, but then they need something else. They need something maybe more directive uh, than Montessori for going higher and higher into more abstract knowledge. Uh, what what is your uh, your view on that idea? Or maybe I, another way of putting this is is uh, uh, what what does Montessori offer for children who are going into more and more abstract knowledge? So she offers a ton. So so um, I mean I think more than anything, what Montessori offers in implementation practice, even in the even for older students for for elementary age students. Um, that I think is really, really important is um, the basic pedagogical framework in which you can think about those questions. Um, so let's say that you 
come to the conclusion that um, I don't know what's something that most objectivists believe about uh, about education that 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 you should study science in a basically historical order in a kind of rough historical order um, and that that that's that's a kind of inductive way to do it and that the um, kind of science exercises and activities should be arranged historically um, to kind of lead a child up up through kind of increasingly complicated um, and uh, and sophisticated and deep generalities that 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 that's the kind of rough order. So let's say that that's true. And I have a lot of sympathy for that idea. So I'm not saying that it's not true. Um, um, I'm just kind of using it as a toy example. How do you then go about it? Do you have a 45 minute class every day where you're giving assignments and telling the children what to do? Do you give lectures? Do you do you have labs? Is it all just is it just obvious to you kind of what the pedagogy should be? Um, how the day should be structured? How, how should you motivate children to be interested in this? Will children just be naturally motivated? What's, what's the nature of a child's motivation when they're, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, when you're going to want to start introducing these ideas? Um, what, to what extent can you, um, can the ch children discover this themselves through learning materials? And to what extent do they need kind of help? How, how important is vocabulary to this process? To what extent do you need, really need to kind of get the terminology? Should you lead with the vocabulary or should you end with the vocabulary? What's the order here? Um, Montessori is a framework for basically, answer, if not outright answering those questions, I'm giving you a lot of guidance on how to think about those questions in a really healthy way. Um, so, I mean, Montessori says that you should have um, a prepared environment with um, a lot of materials that the children can use independently that have features like control of error, um, that they should learn how to read and write before they get to this point so that they can have access to independent resources of reading and writing and that, that that's an important piece of it. They should, they should be working in small group settings that the teacher should come in and offer targeted lessons at the beginning to show them how to use materials and how to get set up and how to practice. Um, leave them alone for extended periods of time. Let the children kind of organize their work and organize their study around this. And then also come in at the end to make sure that they're getting the vocabulary in the right way and that this should take place in a rough order. Um, that you know you might say is kind of um, chunked in a certain way what in, according to what Montessori called a three-period lesson which we could talk about um, um, which is an analogy for something that happens in early childhood and then those they're kind of little three-period lesson mini cycles um, that happen in the context of this broader historical um, sequence that you're going through um, and and it's just it, it's a it's a beautiful approach and it, I think if you took that same approach that kind of historical approach and you put it into a traditional framework, it's going to go wrong. You're going to have students that aren't that motivated to learn it. Um, you're going to lose, ha like half the class is going to be enthusiastic and half the class you're going to lose. Half the class is going to be like, uh, and half of that half that you lose is going to be like able to go on faster and more advanced and half, half of the half just isn't going to be on the bus. They don't have the context. Um, they're going to be competitive with one another. Um, you're going to be wondering what kinds of assignments to give them. Some of them that you're going to give are going to be okay. Others are going to be less good. Like it, it doesn't just follow from the idea that there's a hierarchy. Um, how you should approach that in the context of an education and Montessori is just brilliant on kind of giving you a framework to think about these issues. So part of what I heard you saying just now is that uh, Montessori provides a way to uh, adjust for the level that each individual child is at and kind of adjust the pace for the different children in a class. Can you say a little bit more about how that works? I mean, the default activity in a Montessori classroom is all individual. It's all, you know, a child is working on something themselves or they're getting one-to-one -on -one -one instruction. For older children, maybe the default changes from like one-to-one -one instruction to like one-to-three instruction or something like that. And, and there's, um, there's a fair amount of cooperative work that's encouraged too. So it's not just, 
um, that you're working by yourself, but the, there's a, um, the, the day is not structured and the education system is not structured around group instruction. I mean, that is just, a, it's, 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 it's developed around an individual's activity um, and kind of meeting an individual where they are. And those individuals who are on fire about some subject and ready to like massively accelerate, like there's no ceiling on what they can do. And, and, and the program is very differentiating in that respect. And to the individuals that need more help, like there's no floor on how slowly they can go. Like there's no reason to move on until you really get it and really understand it. It doesn't do anybody any good to be like, um, this, this is what in kind of educational parlance, um, uh, mastery variable time fixed learning. It's like, we're all going along together at a fixed page. And if you don't get it, if you don't get the material that we're going through by a certain point, like too bad, like we're moving on, like, like you get a C, you know, it, it's like, no, everybody gets an A. It's just the question is how long does it take you to get there? Some people get there in like five minutes. Some people might take five days. Some people might take five weeks, depending on what you're doing and, and what the kind of variance is in your class. Um, but it's, it's the thing that's variable is time. Um, and, and, um, and the thing that that's fixed is what you're learning. And that is very, very, very much baked in to the Montessori approach. There are other approaches that have more of that too. So Montessori isn't unique in this regard, but the current education system, um, the current manifestation of traditional education and even classical education, um, where everything is so oriented around group instruction is very amenical, um, to, um, very, very opposed to, um, um, to that kind of mastery-based learning idea. So on the character side of things, uh, one of the hallmarks of objectivism is the, the importance of values and the idea that people should, should form and pursue serious values and, and build their lives around this. Uh, does Montessori have a view about the, the role of values in education? And can Montessori education help children become valuers of the, the type that objectivism suggest people should be? Yeah, it, it absolutely can. And she absolutely does. I think that this is the most underappreciated aspect of Montessori, certainly the most underappreciated for objectivists. I think that objectivists tend to be really quickly drawn to the kind of epistemic knowledge oriented um, aspects of Montessori. And for those, those are good things to be drawn towards. So um, not, not, those aren't bad instincts. Um, but yeah, I mean, according to Rand, the purpose of life is not to become a thinker, it's to be an impassioned valuer, and thought is your crucial tool in, be, in being an impassioned valuer. Um, and, and she thought that that had a certain look, that you, you were purpose-oriented, that you felt things strongly and dreamed greatly and, and pursued things with persistence and, 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 and through great challenges, and that you, you conceived of great values with your thinking, and, and that you kind of set them um, up to play a certain kind of central role in your life. Um, and Montessori thinks that that, and she agrees. They, random Montessori agree that this is, this is, um, this is a capacity that's built developmentally. That some some adults have this in spades, and others don't. This is a capacity that's built developmentally. So Rand talks about this in numerous places. Um, the clearest, I think, is in her essay Art and Moral Treason. Um, and Montessori thinks, yes, that is true. Like you learn how to set goals and you learn how to become efficacious at pursuing them. And you learn to love that effortful process. And you learn to think about goals as you become an elementary student and an adolescent, and it becomes more and more conceptual. And there, there's a process that you can practice. And this is part of becoming independent and self-regulating. Um, there's a ton to say about this topic. I think it's um, the best thing about Montessori education. The most important thing about Montessori education is that it creates valuers.
is that, is that it creates independent valuers. That's more important in the epistemology. If you had to pick, you don't have to pick, obviously, but if you had to pick, that's, that's more important. Um, and um, I'm giving a whole talk this summer about this, so I don't want to spoil too much too much of it here um, at at, uh, at Ocon 2022 in DC. So um, you can you can listen to it there via whatever options there are to listen to it live in person online. Um, so I'll be giving that talk with Rebecca Gern, who's um, who's an amazing educator, parent, pedagogue, thinker about education, who I work with. So sounds great. I. Uh Maybe we're running close to the end of our time, but do you want to tell us a little bit about how uh, how Higher Ground came to be and maybe how you got into Montessori in the first place? Um, so, yeah, as you mentioned in my intro, I'm a philosophy PhD. I'll just tell a little bit of my uh, my, my kind of journey. Um, um, I'm a philosophy PhD. I, I, I love philosophy. I love grad school. Um, I... Um, I liked being in academia, um, but my favorite thing about my academic life was the teaching, was taking 18-year-olds, college students, and teaching them. And I taught at, at, at good universities. Um, so I did my PhD at UPenn and did tons of, tons of teaching there. I was a visiting professor at Franklin and Marshall College, really good top 50-ish, I think, um, um, liberal arts college where you got students who were interested in, in, in learning and teachers who were interested in teaching. Um, and I experience what basically every professor experiences, which is that the 18 year olds who come to you are not that equipped for college or life. Um, and the 21 year olds that leave college are also not that equipped for life. Um, so so there's, a real, there's a real kind of being a professor and loving the teaching and taking it seriously, you end up thinking about pedagogy, you end up thinking about your students, like what what is your function here and what are you doing for them and why do your students wanna be here? and you know, given that what what is the nature of the problems that your students are coming in with, and how can you remediate on it? How can you solve those in the in the context of also trying to accomplish whatever the nominal goals are for your class, the primary goals of like teaching them philosophy or teaching them psychology or whatever you teach them. Um, and so I just I became really interested in education. I was actually reading my teaching statement that I used to apply to jobs um, recently that I haven't revisited in like nine or ten years, and it's like a lot of themes that. Um, carry carry through to my life now, what I think about education now. I was thinking about um, when I was a professor. Um, but eventually for various reasons, partly because I was really motivated by those questions and, and really wanted to kind of like fix the problems at root, um, and partly just because of other life circumstances and life changes that I was going through, I, I was looking for a career change to think about education earlier um, and uh, um, started to talk to some Montessorians who I know, people like Ray Gern and Rebecca Gern, and they convinced me, I was thinking at the time like high school and middle school, and they were like, no, 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 like you've got to check out like three-year-olds. And I was like, what? Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't really know that much about Montessori. So I went and I, I saw my first Montessori school. I was really, really blown away by what I saw um, children working purposefully, quietly on things that mattered to them, um, but with, with this kind of passionate intensity and not because a teacher was in front of the room inspiring them and being charismatic and charming them into doing it but it was like what i remember from my childhood which was pretty happy which is just like you find things that you just fall in love with and you do them like i spent hours and hours of my childhood damming creeks and playing with legos and teaching myself how to draw and like figuring out that like oh you can like shade things and then that makes them look 3d and being obsessed with that like that's what these three four five six year olds that i observed were doing and i i just was really charmed really fell in love with it 
Um, I'm trained as an intellectual historian, so my way of falling in love with things is to like, I'm like, what's going on here? I'm like, I'm going to read all of Maria Montessori's letters and her epistolary and her books and her critics. And I started doing that, and that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. Um, and um, I mean, when I was starting doing that and, and just talking to people in the Montessori world, like a lot of us were forming a hive mind around some of the themes that we've talked about, just like, you know, having a certain kind of structure in which freedom can develop into self-discipline and independence and thinking about what knowledge looks like both the early years and at the older years and maybe changing the curriculum and tweaking it and what is going right in Montessori anyway and kind of coming up with our own formulations of those things. Um, all the time doing a deep, deep study of Montessori and taking it really seriously as a practice, seeing her as the genius that she was. Um, you know, the group of us that were talking and thinking about that just decided, like, this is it. This is what we want to do with our lives, like a moonshot around this idea of um, education for agency, education for independence, helping people become impassioned, valuers, successful thinkers, competent and able and willing and passionate about living their own lives. Um, that's what we wanted to do. And we thought that education could really help. And we thought that we had resources um, that were, you know, the fire of the gods, just like, like we, we, you know, either outright the answers to some of the perennial problems in education, or at least major, major leads on the answers. Um, and that was higher ground. I mean, higher ground was, you know, 12 of us who got together and, you know, wanted to turn this into, into a big dream, wanted to turn it into a moonshot and believe that we could. And that was six years ago, um, six, six years ago and a month ago at this, at this point. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're doing a lot. We have a network of 100 Montessori schools. We train about 1,000 teachers a year. We're developing a tech backend platform. We do homeschooling, virtual schooling, physical schooling. Um, we, have, we serve students from three months old through the end of high school. So, um, you know, it's still early days. We're only six years in, but um, um, really uh, living the dream, trying to figure it out with the, with the amazing uh, team that I, that I happen to be so lucky to know. And can you tell us a little bit about what, what Montessorium is? So Montessorium is, um, so higher, there are no higher ground schools. Um, higher ground is the name of the kind of big corporation, the startup that I've been talking about working for. Um, um, we, higher ground is kind of like an umbrella organization and there are a bunch of specific sub projects and brands. Like we have our own teacher training prepared Montessorian. We train our teachers, um, PMI, Prepared Montessori Institute, we train our teachers, but also that anybody can come and enroll and get, get accredited in Montessori uh, teaching, uh, Montessori training. Um, um, we also have our, like a, a lower school network um, of early childhood and elementary schools called Guidepost. We have a, a adolescent, middle, and high school program called the Academy of Thought and Industry. Um, so Montessori is another project under the heading of higher ground, and it's really our think tank arm. So it's wholly owned and operated by, by a higher ground. It's small. It's like me and three other people um, working on the history of education and articulating our philosophy of education and having little classes on, on the history of education or organizing events, conferences around big ideas in education, kind of figuring out how to articulate our view, how to engage with people on it. Like what are the deepest questions? What are the deepest ideas? What are the deepest controversies? And what is our opinion on them? And where we don't know, how are we gonna figure it out? Who are we gonna ask, who are we gonna talk to? So, so it's very, very much a think tank that's aimed at figuring out what is true in education? Like, what are the first principles of education? And my main job is, um, you know, directing this think tank for which I do a lot of uh, speaking, teaching, and writing. Well, thank you, Matt. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us.
so uh, we wanted to mention some resources that you might be interested in checking out if you want to read more. Uh, first, we have a couple of articles that Matt wrote that are on the Montessorium website. Uh, the first one is Culture of Work, Culture of Knowledge, which you can access at bit.ly slash culturemont, M-O-N-T. Uh, the other one is Human Achievement and Human Development, which you can access at bit.ly slash humanmont. Uh, and the other uh, resource to mention is Ayn Rand's essay, The Comprachicos, which Matt mentioned that there are a number of places where she talks about Montessori. This is, I think, the place where she talks the most about her view of Montessori education and really her view of education in general. Uh, so if you want to see more about Ayn Rand's thoughts on the subject, that's a good resource for that. Definitely. Yeah, those are great resources. Um, um, I would also recommend that, I think I mentioned this essay, the essay by Rand, Art and Moral Treason, which talks about the role of literature, essentially, of, of art in the development of values, of, in the development of the capacity to be a valuer and how, how normative abstractions develop. And she just, she talks a lot about what goes on in a child's mind and, and she takes a very developmental approach to it. Um, it's a phenomenal and underrated essay, Art and Moral Treason. Um, and then um, just for my stuff, like, I mean, the easiest way to find my stuff is go to montessorium.com um, and there's, you know, dozens of essays, maybe maybe even hundreds at this point um, by, by me and other people that I work with on the philosophy of education. And then you can also just follow me on Twitter. I'm at, at mbateman on Twitter. I tweet a lot. Um, I'm pretty active and, uh, and engaged there. So that's also a good way to reach me. Great. Uh, also, we'd appreciate it if you, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, if you could uh, like this show, if you enjoyed watching it and subscribe to our channel to see more content like this. And don't forget that if you click the bell icon, uh, then you can receive notifications when uh, we post new content or when we go live. Uh, it also helps if you, uh, if you comment and, and share your own thoughts and, and also share uh, this, this uh podcast episode with other people if if you liked what you heard. Uh, also, if you have any uh, feedback or questions or suggestions for episode ideas, uh, you can write us at newideal at einrand.org. We read all of these emails. We respond to many of them. And uh, we've we've done uh, podcasts based on ideas that we've, we've received in emails. Uh, so don't hesitate to write to us. Uh, so to conclude, thanks for watching and thank you, Matt, for uh, speaking with us today. Thanks again for having me. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.